Dr. Corey is quoted here as saying in her medium piece, the school will count me among their diverse faculty, but only if I compartmentalize my blackness. It really doesn't matter how educated you are, how well-spoken you are. My life in America is informed by my racialized identity, but my livelihood is dependent on the comfort of other people. How nice you look, how much you think you should be protected from this image of what a Black person is. It really doesn't matter. Yet this was the summer that so many of us knelt together. As soon as your color is seen, whether it is consciously or subconsciously, you're going to be treated completely different. This was the summer I thought I would be permitted to be Black in medical education. This is the second part of episode five. We started this episode a couple months ago. In the first part of episode five, we discussed medical activism. So we discussed what does it mean to be a medical activist? What is your place for medical activism? What does it mean to be a, a human activator? We also had a guest speaker, Tosin, who is a MS for University of Colorado School of Medicine, was currently getting her MPH from Cal Berkeley and she talked about health activism and what made her pursue health activism as a practice. And then we also discussed the history of the AMA and it's mm-hmm. it's a turbulent history with race and diversity mm-hmm. and equity for a lot of things that was on the wrong side of history. You're listening to the second part of our two-part conversation on medical activism. You are listening to A Medical History in Color. I wanted to just kind of highlight how these social movements that we're seeing don't just happen instantaneously, right? It's that cycle. It's that continuous cycle that pushes into that norm that then bleeds out the social movement. People like to say that, like you said, it's just kind of happened or emancipation, now we're free. Like, no, no, it's the sustained (laughs) action. It's the sustained action and the cycles of contention we mentioned earlier. At this point, we're going to kind of pivot. And, you know, Martha mentions that everything that Black people have got has been hard won. And so I think that sometimes makes us really protective of what we do have and Mm -hmm. almost adverse to risks for sometimes for this generation of Black people. So that being the case, the Black elites to be, I think, can feel understandably ambivalent about activism, about that agitative form of activism, that contentious form of activism that makes you look like the not so good minority. Everyone mm-hmm. wants to be, we want to be the good minority. Mm-hmm. Activism does not always portend individual success for Black people in a still very white professional space. In fact, it portends quite the opposite. I would, so... When we started off this podcast, I made reference to the idea of who gets to be an activist in medicine, right? And who doesn't, who can actually absorb some of those consequences and who's going to receive the full brunt of those consequences. In this portion, we're kind of getting into a little bit of that because I would say, right, like the activism or that agitative brand of activism, the activism of Asada Shakur, Huey Newton, Fred Hampton, Malcolm X, that scares like white people, but it also scares black elites. Like they want no parts of that. In the medical in the medical world because that is the sort of thing that i think we've learned makes us less desirable as someone to work with in medicine because our idea of what makes us a functional professional is still very much based on what makes it easier for white people to get along with us 
There's a brand of activism that many Black medical trainees and physicians seem to prefer. Social media, at its most superficial, it's stunting. We want status, health, and comfort, but we also want the freedom to rise in what is unquestionably a world that's still predominantly white. This creates a conflict in us at times. The medical community at large is still arguing in modern day about whether or not it's professional for physicians and trainees to take open political stances. And again, I would like to bring it to the question of who, who is it unprofessional to have, to have certain stances, right? So wait, so, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> I really like that you said that. I feel like I was talking to one of my directors of my Colorado Springs branch program about this, this idea of being apolitical in medicine. And I remember telling him... That sounds fine and dandy, but that's a uh, fairy tale reality that yes. we don't live. I it think is it, a mythical reality. What? It never existed. The that's moment I was born, the world, this American culture decided that my skin was a political thing. I didn't get a choice in the matter. So how can we in medicine be apolitical? What? That honestly right. doesn't even make sense to me looking at our history and how political it was to bring us to this very state. It's, it's almost, always been political. Yeah. So it's just like, how are we all of a sudden just entitled to this version of reality that the majority of us aren't living? And because of this entitlement to reality, we are then harming patients who are living in a very political world. Ooh, so okay. and I think keep going. This like even has a whole take on a separate idea or something that really grinds my gears about how people talk about politics because I think people think politics is as simple as you're a Democrat or you're a Republican in the US. But politics literally permeates every aspect of our life. Like you said, our skin is political just because of how people see our skin. What church group you decide to associate is considered political. How you make your money is political. All these things are driven by some sort of political force. It is not just as simple as I turned up and I voted at the polls or I turned up and I paid taxes. Like all of these things have a political underpinning to them. And I think that sometimes people like to simplify the definition of politics so that they can pretend that they can remove themselves from politics or remove politics from professional spheres and that's just uh, not the case in the same that's way we try to remove racism from health and uh make it exactly right now. like racism has nothing to do with how how health care is meted out and that's a fantasy it's a fantasy it's unsupported at this point take police brutality for example okay. so we're in a season where now we can openly talk about police brutality all right so let's just start with some simple stats black americans are two and a half times more likely to be killed by the police compared to a white person. A study by Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health places the number as high as three times more likely than white people in the U.S. Rates of police violence against Blacks were calculated as higher in the Midwest and the South. So again, if I could draw attention to those healthcare profiles that Tosin mentioned earlier in the podcast, when we're talking about zip codes and mm -hmm. what they have to do with life expectancy and cardiovascular mortality decreasing, I guarantee you that if you took that map and overlaid it with these same places where in the Midwest and the South that have higher rates of police brutality, they, the maps would probably be almost entirely superimposable. They will probably almost be symmetrical. That, that is my theory, but we didn't do that research because this isn't that type of podcast in <laughs> that way, right? These are the places that we we're talking about earlier that probably own more slaves and they also have the poorest cardiovascular profiles for Black people. A thousand people are killed by law enforcement annually. So this includes white and black people. And I had this conversation with a black friend and I think he expected me to get angry, but I didn't because I, I, cause you know, 
I didn't get upset because at the end of the day, I know that what he was saying was unsupported. And so I think a lot of people, when they hear about police brutality being disproportionately levied against Black people, their inclination is to say, well, white people are killed by police too, and more of them are killed by police. There are more white people in this country. The rate at which Black people are killed is still higher than mm -hmm. the rate at which white people are killed, even in places where white people, where Black people only make up like 3% of the population. So it's not about the number. It is about the rate. And this is something that we see constantly in healthcare. And this is a measurement that we use in healthcare. But I find it interesting that when we talk about the rate of police brutality, as far as black people versus white people, then everyone's like, oh, it's, it's about the flat number. It's more white people. I'm like, there are more white people in this country. Black people only make up 13% of the population. So it's an issue if more of them are being killed by police. And it's not because more of them are criminal, which I think is the other idea that people try to throw in there. So mm. the AMA has its stance on police brutality that we read earlier and now has taken a clear stance on that and has issued several different statements about it over the last couple of months in the heat of these protests and stuff. Mm -hmm. Not so long ago, it was unprofessional to discuss this openly in medicine. It was unprofessional to discuss the ways in which police brutality doesn't just affect some theoretical other who wasn't gifted enough to be in medical school, but how these things also affect its black medical students and their family and their patients. Ooh, yo, that is just highlighting how these are isolated incidences. We're so used yes. to just looking at the diagnosis and only that, but there's so much more at play, so much more at play. You could talk about these things in theory, right? But like, again, there's always this fear when you are a Black person in a very white space, and that is medicine. Medicine is still a very white space. There are a lot of internationals and a lot of people of color who are part of medicine, but arguably the culture of medicine is still very white. And so when you have yes. Black people talking about these things in very white spaces, you have to remember that we're very scared of being labeled as militant or <laughs> agitative, argumentative, difficult, abrasive, unpleasant. And I can't teach so, you. <laughs> exactly. Like you, you don't want that label. And so it makes it hard to talk about some of these issues versus we have white colleagues or non-black colleagues, white women in our field, white men in our field, who if they show up and talk about these same issues, they're considered conscious revolutionaries. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So there's there's a social penalty that they don't necessarily, they don't receive the same grade of social penalty for talking about these issues. And so I find it interesting now that we can talk about these things, it's we can talk about these things almost because we've been given permission by- Aha, uh -huh. Adrian, you're just dropping gems. So keep That's, going, keep going. More cynical, that came off more cynical than I mean it to be because it's also that I think we are taking and seizing the moment mm -hmm. to bring up things that are, are issues that are close to our heart. But again, like I just kind of want to put that little note of caution in there. There are still, even within the space of social justice, there are people who are receiving penalties for talking about social justice issues and people who are not receiving or not as likely to receive those same penalties. And these people are people who are getting accolades. Exactly. <laughs> people who are getting accolades for this. Mm. Drawing it back expressly to the conversation of police brutality. Mm. There's physicians who would love to believe that there's no place for them in this conversation. And I think the white physicians and white adjacent physicians don't necessarily want to, or some of them don't necessarily want to question their own internalized racism, right? So they want to believe that the issue of police brutality dis disproportionately affecting Black people has nothing to do with them. I mean, after all, they're not part of that community. They're not the so 
called criminals. Some of them don't even want to believe it's real. That's true. They're like, oh, they're criminals. Of course more of them are affected by police brutality. And like, they're more likely to be criminals. Of course, this is the correct thing to do. But this can't be the case when you serve a multiracial patient population, correct? And they don't have to expressly be shot by the police, right, for you to Mm -hmm. have that sympathy. But it's like you have to bring some social awareness to your practice. If, like you say, you're interested in building rapport with your patients and making sure that you can actually be the most effective physician possible. Another reason why white and white adjacent physicians can't, in my opinion, afford to be both intellectually correct or on the right, intellectually correct on the right side of history and also somehow completely oblivious to these issues affecting black patients and patients of color is you literally have people who are now producing research on how this affects how black people are actually interacting with the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. We talk about healthcare disparities, but people are really comfortable with the idea of healthcare disparities when you can just restrict them to, oh, okay, well, black people just have worse cardiovascular profiles. They don't want to talk about resolution of those healthcare disparities because that that involves taking a lot more accountability for the ways in which you're interacting, right, with your patients of color. You know, another thing is you have the Journal of Racial and Ethnic Health Disparities publishing articles on the intersection between fear of police and fear of physicians, or as Martha defined a few episodes ago, eatrophobia. Police brutality encompasses Mm -hmm. unreasonable use of physical force, as well as actions by police meant to intimidate, harass, or dehumanize. Research exploring the relationship between police brutality and health predominantly focuses on the physical and mental health outcomes of people who experience police violence. However, police brutality might also shape health outcomes indirectly by creating mistrust or fear of other authority figures and institutions, such as doctors in the formal healthcare system. This study examines variation in medical mistrust based on exposure to police brutality. Mm. And so generally what you see in this paper, and what you see in real life, honestly, is coincidentally, and I, I say that honestly, sarcastically, Native Americans, Latinx, and Black Americans have a greater distrust of our medical system than white Americans. And I mean, like I said, I say coincidentally, ironically, because that is no coincidence if we go and just take a brief waltz through history and seeing how those interact. What? Not only that, we go ahead and have Tuskegee happen here. We strip land from indigenous folks. We leave our borders and go to Guatemala to do the exact same thing. Like, and we sterilize them without their permission. Yeah. So, so all of that contextualizing yes. again that this mistrust of native americans indigenous folks and black people and hispanic folks <sighs> of the healthcare system is is actually not that coincidental and it's actually well earned it's not just them being spooked by the healthcare system there's real reasons historical and present for their distrust mm-hmm. and even when we talk about within the hospital environment so black patients and their visitors are two times as likely to have the police called on them in a hospital mm-hmm. setting so one of my friends was at a rotation where they were in the emergency room and there was a black family who was who were the patients and it was like a patient and their family. And one of the nurses called security on one of the uh, patient family. The guy wasn't doing anything. He was just sitting there. He looked like he could have maybe been on the autism spectrum. He was just quietly sitting there like muttering to himself. Mm-hmm. But the nurse decided that he was he didn't fit in or he, he looks suspicious like he, he's in the wrong place even though he's there with his family member that's obviously that's ill and uh, security on him and 
my classmates who is black had to step in and say no this man hasn't done anything mm-hmm. the me- medical student had to do that yes like not the physicians not the residents not the attending not the nurses the people. person the lowest totem pole but it also it showcases that burden that black students have when we're in these spaces again like the responsibility that we feel that some of our like non-black counterparts might not feel necessarily i was gonna say this this type of bias of reporting essentially we're seeing it in our education systems as well where black students are four times more likely to be suspended mm-hmm. or expelled and not for these intense crimes in school more commonly for right. behavior issues. And that just puts them hand in hand with the criminal justice system. That same stat nat- nationwide, Black students, Indigenous students, students who are in this other category are three times more likely to experience in-school arrests. And we talk about the school to prison pipeline being directly correlated to this bias of reporting. That patient Not was sitting the bias there of and the nurse was Like the bias of being surveilled. They're also more yeah. likely to be surveilled. Yes, exactly. So I guess you're right. It's not the bias of reporting, right? It's it's this mm-hmm. bias of threat. You feel threatened right now. Your relationship to violence looks like someone else who is other. So you mm-hmm. criminalize that, right? Ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Ridiculous. And then even within that, right? Like, so you have these black patients and their families who are not given the same hospitality by the, by hospitals or by hospital admin who are more likely to have police that calls on them. And then even another example of this directly yeah. correlating to the hospital environment is that you often, and any black medical student <laughs> could probably come up with a story of this, but you also see that healthcare staff are more likely to use negative descriptors of black patients and their families. So even if oh. I had to tell a story about recently from this week, so one of my friends is on a SICU rotation and there is a young man who comes in from an accident who has like terrible like cranial bleeds or whatever right his family this is during COVID-19 so um you know that they're not allowing people to come in and see you but this is a boy who literally is almost knocking on death's door and his family comes from out of state to see him and make sure he's okay and they originally didn't want to let him in and so the family essentially they made a ruckus to make sure that they could see their their son their family member and make sure that he was okay and they're referred to as difficult by several members of the healthcare administration instead of people having the sympathy to say hey you know maybe we should be doing more to communicate the status of this patient to their family so they could feel at ease even though they don't see them no one was willing to really do that for them and so again you see kind of like the slight difference mm-hmm. in how you're treating a patient just based on you putting them in this other category so when we talk about study the study was conducted on a study population composed of those 18 and older and participants were asked to complete a healthcare distrust scoring assessment and also asked if they'd ever had negative interactions with the police negative encounters were defined as ones in which the respondent was searched frisked or padded threatened arrest or actually handcuffed threatened with a ticket shoved or grabbed hit or kicked pepper sprayed or another chemical agent was used on the respondent, electroshock weapon used on the respondent, stun gun, and finally actually having a gun pointed at the respondent. And so the respondents are supposed to actually respond about whether or not they've had these encounters with the police. Respondents with at least one negative encounter asked if they thought the response by the police was warranted. And so here I will admit, right, we see a predictable limitation of the study in that these these are self-reported things and they're very subjective. 
So based on the account of the person who had the negative interaction. Still, overall, the study found that minorities scored higher in the medical distrust assessment than their white counterparts who took the same assessment. And what's more, that there was a positive correlation between this distrust and perceived negative counters with the police. So respondents who were more likely to have negative encounters with the police, they also were more likely to distrust their doctor. And that impacts what type of information your physician is getting, what type of rapport you can build with your patient. And basically, it completely... I want to say undermines the physician patient relationship in a medical encounter. So I hear two things here, not only black people, but ethnic minorities in general are less likely to trust the police. And they also don't trust doctors. <laughs> they see them as extensions of the untrustworthy and often abusive institution of whiteness. And doctors don't think that's their problem like how can it not be your problem like this happened regardless of what race you are this has to be your problem right because you're in medicine you are a doctor mm -hmm. and if you're supposed to build this patient physician relationship build this mm -hmm. rapport how what? how's that going to happen if your patients don't trust you mm -hmm. and if you as as partaking in the mm -hmm. system aren't able to step aside look at it and be like oh there's an issue with the system and it's affecting my relationship with my patient is affecting the way my patient gets treated and affects the health outcome of my patient and to do something about it that's that's mm -hmm. sad yeah yeah i feel like that's also a big ass too because like nowadays your doctor visits mm, for 15 yeah. minutes and half of that time you're typing in something so you can get the right yeah. billing information into your epic and then after that you've got 15 more patients the physician's time is yeah. monopolized who's supposed to recognize these system deficits and then fix them in real time that's the burden of the physician who's the healer and the mentor and the health activist and the, the researcher what what are, what are we doing in medicine right now when you're able to to kind of bring everybody together and you can you can show we've actually talked to all these different groups of people and while this is one issue there are other things as well so when it comes to race specifically you know folk say they're tired and the truth of the matter is you're tired because of what you thought the conversation was going to be about mm -hmm. and and the truth is we actually haven't had a real conversation because now we're having the conversation right about systemic racism and the inequities that are um, as opposed to just prejudice because it's more than just I don't like these people it is what are the systems in place to support the dislike of these people what other players are there beside the AMA that are currently safe embedded ways for medical students to combine their activism with study I would want to highlight a couple noteworthy organizations. I'll start with ones that are more physician-led. So we talked about the NMA briefly, right? How they're kind of the collective voice of African-American physicians and really the leading force for parity and justice in medicine. Right next door to the NMA, we have the SNMA. So that's the Student National Medical Association founded in 1964 as a subdivision of the NMA to give students an avenue really to support each other as they go through this career path of becoming a doctor. And the SNMA has evolved to also include components of advocacy and to an extent also activism. For example, 
October 4th, right? Coming up right now, they're having a whole forum about electoral advocacy. What does it look like to get patients registered to vote? What is the electoral college? Why did that happen with Trump and Hillary in the last election, right? So the SNMA has those avenues. Another more physician-led um, institution is the AAMC, right? Most times when we think about the AAMC, we're like, oh yeah, that's the folks who gave me my MCAT score, right? But <laughs> they do so much more, <laughs> right? Um, they actually <laughs> they created this organization of student representatives that represents medical schools and medical students nationwide, giving students an active role in advancing the AAMC's missions to improve mm -hmm. the nation's health, right? So I know on my campus, my OSR reps were always going back and forth and giving us updates around national policies about medical education or even in a meeting i had just recently with my medical student council one of the osr reps asked like how are we going to have students inform this era of decisions that racism is real and not only that how do we move into an era of action where we're not just kind of talking about it and finding the studies again a part to play but they're people who are suffering right now so a couple more orgs i want to highlight so we also have white coats for mm. black lives so white coats for black lives oh, all right so they they became um kind of an official nationally recognized organization on martin luther king jr day in 2015 right their mission is to dismantle racism in medicine and promote the health well-being and self-determination of people of color i think when i think about health activism White Coats for Black Lives is a good example of what that looks like in the terms of action speaking louder, right? They even had a whole campaign dedicated to action speaking louder, where they pushed into their cohort of medical students across the nation to talk to their administration and demand changes to the medical education, to demand changes in the way we look at our communities and take care of people of color. They also have like a racial justice report card. So these are some examples of organizations that medical students can tap into and kind of learn more about. The last organization I do want to give a plug for is they're called Structural Competency. They're still fairly new, but they dive into this aspect of the multi-hyphenated, mm. right? Where we see there are multiple systems in play that are affecting the health outcomes for our patients, right? So they have like webinars and trainings for medical students who want to learn more, or even students who want to show their administration, hey, this can be something we also talk about, something we should teach about. Because I honestly feel more often than not, we don't get the opportunity to talk about solutions because we don't actually talk right. about the issues, right? We have a group of students who are dedicated. They went through all the years of training. They went through all the MCATs, the steps, all the things, and their minds are kind of ready and willing to take on very challenging situations. Think about being in the OR or advocating for a patient who's going through kidney transplant. Like those are complex issues. Take those same minds and challenge them to think about solutions in the way we do medicine, the way we think about the whole human. We don't get that opportunity often. So these are some organizations that medical students can look into and say like, oh, is there something here I could do? Maybe I just want to see what they're doing so I can understand what it looks like for me I you know think we spent a lot of time talking about how to get started rather than like actually like jumping into the work right and I think that's really difficult for medical students also because I think that sometimes a medical education institution because it doesn't prioritize our value activism it doesn't give medical students time to do that it doesn't mm -hmm. give medical students 
you know, any sort of um, incentive to do that and how it looks at our applications for residency and stuff like that. And so we're always under this time crunch where we're like, we need to do research. We need to be part of this organization and that organization. But we also don't want to get a black mark that makes us look like a difficult a exactly so i think it's really important to talk about these organizations that are kind of already mired in medicine that allow you to have like an institutionally sanctioned way to be inv involved in activism if you're someone who is wary of engaging in you know agitative street level activism yeah i also think there's there's a part here to play for our medical education and how we're kind of er entering this era of reform. So I know my school, for example, I go to CU Anschutz in Colorado. They've been talking about reform for the curriculum for the past like two years, past year and a half, honestly, since I entered. And like this new curriculum they're rolling out with is supposed to give students an opportunity to do just that, right? Like how do we actually have protective time so our students can dive into the complexity of what it looks like to take care of a community or a whole person or to have value placed into community-based participatory research, right? We put a lot of value into these kind of hard sciences. And like, how do we also transfer that value into the things that define our social norms or our social constructs, right? There has to be space for us to do that, right? Most of us just want to be med students, but now we're med students and researchers <laughs> and activists, and we're training the trainer, and we're anti-racist policy agenda we're setters, like for our administration <laughs> on equity and diversity. We're consultants, <laughs> not paid. getting paid a lick. Yes, so much. So, with that being said, we talked a lot about all these different avenues of activism. I kind of want to draw the conversation to another question of mine, which is what is what is not activism? Like what does not count as activism in this in this landscape? Because we talked about a few different ways of being someone who's active or being someone who's an activator and versus being someone who advocates for an issue and how those two things kind of intersect, right? And make and make for activism, make for active conscious action-based activism. But what are things that do not count as activism, though they are easier things sometimes for us to do? I think that activism, like you said, kind of comes with this um, this this burden of the mm. consequence, right? That most of us, especially as medical students who are trying to get into residency, can't afford. That's an expensive price to pay. So a lot more times you look at advocacy as an avenue to kind of push into our communities and social norms and social agendas, right? Because it's not directly happening to me, but I can advocate for someone else, right? And still be seen as that good medical student who's doing something meaningful. Versus if we're also looking at organizing, which is different from activism and different from advocacy, right? Organizing comes with this um, this manner of base building where the people who are directly affected, right, are bringing in more folks who are affected and organizing around this kind of cause, right? And all the time, all of these things are pushing against the norm, right? Whether that looks like I'm that one person activating for a cause against the norm or I'm organizing my fellow medical students so we can go to our administration and say, this is not the way, right? Or if I'm advocating, right, for the community that I live in, because I just so happen to live in a zip code that has been forgotten in my area, and I want to advocate for the folks here because right. this is not okay. Service is also not activism, right? We love to volunteer. My students volunteer lists are probably longer than that. Community service, let's go. <laughs> and hey, <laughs> a lot of these type of like 
efforts of service are great and all, but they come back to the space of like self-gratification, right? What are we actually serving? Is it the CV? Is it the resume? Is it the community? Because service has to also be sustainable. We can't just come in with our savior mentality. That's a really good point. That same community, right? And as medical students, we only have four years. Most of us don't stay in our our mother institutions. We, We go. Who's to say the service that we started will continue, right? This aspect of sustainability and service is also not activism. And then again, right, being an activist, being an activator in my mind is very action oriented, action oriented towards some sort of solution that pushes against the norm. I'm for one, I'm very much into what does a solution look like? I think it's important to have our advocates and our organizers and our service folks and people who are raising the collective consciousness with knowledge like your podcast is doing right now like you're giving people facts and history all tied into one right all of that matters but at the same time we also have to put an emphasis into solution right how is all of this coming into play so we can push a solution forward because in real time people are literally dying right how many years have we removed from the lives of community because medicine as an institution hasn't reckoned that that mm-hmm. is something we need to take care of that is something that we have to actually stand up and do so as a recap <laughs> activism is not advocacy it is not organizing it is not service right all of these things can play a role in the cycle of contention to a to status quo where health equity is a real thing we care about human health, but we prioritize health and maybe not as much health care, though very important. But as we've talked about, right, we briefly talked about healthcare and capitalism and a business model. Money is driving mm. the delivery, not mm. the health outcomes. Because if health outcomes were driving the delivery, I, for one, believe our rates would look very different. They would look very different. Yeah. I like also what you keep where you keep returning to when you talk about how medicine has to start kind of sort of reflecting like the lived experiences of the communities that it's serving, right? Because I think that historically there's been this image of the physician that's supposed to be, you know, aloof and removed and like ennobled and separate, but it's like, we are are also the community. The, The physicians are increasingly being made of the community. This is no longer just white physicians going down to you know, the slave quarters on a plantation and giving them their health care and then returning to the white part of society. Now we're talking about a group of people that's increasingly diverse and that is coming from these communities, is has an identity rooted in these communities. And so what does it, what what are the things that we need to do to make sure that our, our medical education and our delivery system is kind of, is reflecting that lived experience mm-hmm. and is not hostile to that lived yeah. experience? you know yeah there's so much work to do and i think even this idea of actually being a part of the community can be a paradigm shift Mm -hmm. for spaces you have big medical schools that are embedded in zip codes that have been forgotten and 20 years being in that same zip code that community Mm -hmm. has not changed what are you actually doing did you just come into this space or are you are you actually taking care wow. of this space? Are you taking care of this zip code? Are you right. taking care of this <laughs> but I don't want to be back. <laughs> as you even mentioned, Sosin, as we start winding down towards our conclusion here, 
like this actually ties into the origin of this podcast. The medical community has been more comfortable talking about the racist, the racism and inequity that plagues the community outside the medical world, as though one world does not feed or touch the other. The reality is that the institution of medicine mm. is a product of a society with a deeply racist and generally inequitable foundation. So while it's in vogue to speak on health inequity, it is not as in vogue to talk about how systemic racism affects Black students, how there are still racists running our medical schools and hospitals hiding in plain sight, how superiors and medical institutions perpetuate this system and enforce it even when they think they're, they're pursuing virtuous ends like professionalism. And that's, that's another, that's a separate rant that I'm not going <laughs> yeah. Similarly, we're now in a period where it's in vogue to talk about police violence and institutional racism. By in vogue, I do not mean in all settings necessarily, but schools are trying to preempt blacklash by signaling anti-racism with different gestures, with additions to the curriculum, with meeting certain student demands, and showcasing coverage of their underrepresented minoritized students being allowed to protest, right? And this is a trend we're seeing nationwide, where your medical students are rising up and the schools are saying, yes, this right here, this is what we do at this school. Our students protest, yes, this whole time, this whole time. More Black students come here, we care. Yeah, exactly. Right. We have to normalize politically genuine, action-based activism in medicine. Medicine is a realm that is lagging behind its contemporaries in public health and other corners of healthcare. We must normalize the conversations we're having in broader society within medicine because it's not exempt from our society's politics as much as it might want to pretend that it is. We, as an institution in medicine, have to divorce ourselves from structural racism. And we can't divorce ourselves from something that we can't even recognize. You're a doctor, you have to serve your patients and what are you going to do when you have a black patient or a Hispanic patient when you hold these internalized beliefs that you haven't questioned or you haven't grappled with? We found consolation in coming together in mourning, lamenting, and planning and dreaming. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but that wasn't, that's not sustainable over the course of a quarter or the course of whatever it is that you're doing because at the end of the day, you still have to complete your rotations. You still have to complete the assignments that you have. Now that we're wrapping up this episode several months after the original date of recording, things have definitely settled a bit. And we're now beginning to see some of the fruits of the season of listening and learning following the protest against police brutality over the summer. We're beginning to see what changes were symbolic or performative versus what institutions actually care to work on genuine long-term change as far as making the space more equitable for and this and the space being the space in medical culture right more equitable for medical students and black medical students and black faculty we're also seeing now the price that minorities can pay for being outspoken about issues of racial justice in the medical system and that was something else that we alluded to in the first part of this conversation. So with that being said, me and Martha kind of wanted to just give you a quick overview of some of the more, I want to say, insidious 
public narratives that have kind of um, come up recently. One of those being about Dr. Aisha Corey, who was recently suspended by Kaiser Permanente School of Medicine. On August 28, 2020, Dr. Corey was suspended by Kaiser Permanente School of Medicine after doing what she was asked to do, which is incorporate topics of bias and racial health disparities in her fundamentals of medicine class. So she's there as a faculty member who's already teaching fundamentals of medicine, and she was asked to incorporate the topics of racial health disparities and topics of bias or implicit bias, as people like to think of more comfortably, in medicine. After several months suspension, she was issued a one month contract that ends in January 31st so that Kaiser School of Medicine could continue investigating her for what I'm not entirely sure. I, I haven't seen the concrete um, work they're using to say that she needed to be suspended, number one, and number two, what they're actually investigating. I'm curious what the complaints were about her because so this is obviously coming from somewhere. Um, I don't know if like, students in the class were hurt or offended by the things that she said and maybe they're the ones to complain mm -hmm. i'm not really sure because i i think i found i found <laughs> recently that people really like to argue with things that are facts right mm -hmm. so she could be just talking about history talking about statistics and yeah history and statistics and people will still find a way to be upset and try to mm -hmm. argue as if it was an opinion she isn't telling you her opinion she's telling you how things are and i think some people may have been hurt right and then there's also like you know every black person i think is familiar with the cries of what is it reverse racism or mm -hmm. discrimination against white people when you talk about the ways that they have been racist or prejudiced whether systemically or even individually against people of color so i can only imagine something like that took place and i'm very curious to see what details will come to light as Aisha Corey talks a little bit more about this narrative publicly. Um, another person is Dr. Ben Danielson. So until recently, November, I believe, he was the medical director of the Odessa Brown Children's Clinic in Seattle, Washington. And it's like an offshoot of Seattle Children's Hospital, and it mainly serves low income and people of color. He recently, he left his position in November and in an interview with Crosscut, he talked about several things that happened for him to leave. He stated that the uh, Seattle Children's Hospital executives would make, in quotes, symbolic overtures to equity, but take little action towards righting its own wrongs. Mm -hmm. um, some of the examples that he gave up was there was a lack of translation services and that mm -hmm. security was called on people of color, patients of color, more often than any other people. Mm -hmm. And he, he also talked about being called the N-word by an admin. That same oh, wow. admin, yeah, the same administration person also refers to Asian people in a racial slur. And that um, that admin is still in power. But Dr. Danielson talks about uh, there have been two people of color in leadership positions that have either been fired or pushed to resign. So even though we've had this summer of reckoning or this summer of reawakening or this summer of awakening, people of color who are in leadership positions are being fired, they're being pushed out of leadership, while those who are actually causing harm are still in positions of power. And so they're being the, used for their yeah, blackness basically. or their face. 
Mm-hmm. And um, in the interview, he states, the institution is replete with racism. And so in, um, in the interview with Coscut, he states, the institution is replete with racism and a disregard for people who don't look like them in leadership. A spokesperson for Seattle Children's Hospital, Jen Morgan, replied back and said, as an institution, we are committed to racial equity, diversity, and inclusion while also holding ourselves accountable and continuing to do the work required to address systemic racism when and where it exists. And these are words you've heard before. We heard them all summer, and yet nothing has actually been done. So these words are like great words to hear. You're like, oh, maybe something will actually change. But as we see, or as we have seen from like these kind of stories, nothing has changed. They've just been words. Mm-hmm. And now that we're seeing, and now that we're seeing that spotlight isn't on the institutions, we're seeing that they're ready to dispose of faculty who are asking them for like concrete, basically mm-hmm. to concretely meet their promises or meet the words that they, you know, uttered this summer or whatever statements they made about mm-hmm. their commitment to racial justice and equity, and you know, a number of things that sound good in the school mission statement, but maybe don't mm-hmm. sound as good when you're trying to retain like certain faculty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing is, he's been on faculty for 20 years. He's been working at the medical, he's been the director for 20 years. And I just imagine how bad it had to get for him to give up now. Not, I shouldn't say give up, because that's, I think that's a really, like, dismissive term to use. But for him right. to leave now. And at a time mm-hmm. where it should be getting better, because that's what, that's what's popular right now, is, you know, read about how to be anti-racist. Oh, Ibram X. Kendi. Yeah, like everybody's reading him. He's on everyone's book club, and we're discussing things. And all of this, all of these discussions and symbolic gestures have been completely useless to Black people. Mm-hmm. Nothing has actually been done. And another story that really just, oh my goodness, when I first saw this video, I was so angry. I was so angry. Was Dr. Susan? It just Ford. got worse as we it, learn more about the story. It, really, it just got yes. worse. Like. <laughs> Dr. Susan Moore, she, I first saw the video that she posted, I saw it on Why Bad. Um, Why Bad, for those who don't know, it stands for Young Black American Doctors, and it's like a Facebook group for um, Black doctors and students and residents, etc. So Dr. Moore posted this video that was horrifying of her experience of um, racism in the hospital while she was Mm -hmm. battling COVID. So I really think that anybody who's listening should just look up her video and just like watch her video because you can like, truly grasp everything she's trying to say. Her name is mm-hmm. Dr. Susan Moore. So if you just type it up, like there are articles that'll come up with her video there. She tested positive for COVID on the 29th and was admitted to, admitted to Indiana University Health North. Dr. Moore talks about how she was in extreme pain. Her doctor completely ignored her pain and wanted to discharge her home. And that actually, that's telling of an issue that the medical system has when seeing patients of color is that they're less likely to prescribe them pain medication Mm -hmm. than white patients who report similar levels of pain. Mm -hmm. And this isn't even just for adults, it's mostly even children. There have been like research showing that even with children, children, black children are less likely to get pain medication 
than any other race of children. And I saw so this like, firsthand myself on internal too. I saw how easy it was. Yeah, because it's it's a double-edged sword. So if you have a patient who is uneducated, quote unquote, and of a perceived lower class, whether that person is like somebody who is a user, an actual substance abuser, right? Or somebody who is perceived as not being as, um, I want to say fluent or medically literate. If you have somebody like that, the perception is going to be, okay, well, they think they need something that they actually don't, or they're just mm -hmm. trying to get drugs because this is what this class of person looks like. But mm -hmm. then if you have somebody like Dr. Susan Moore, who mm -hmm. can advocate for herself and has the appropriate language, then it's still looked at as drug seeking behavior, because yeah. how is it that she so specifically knows what to ask for? And how does she know how to specifically advocate for herself? She must have practice. She must be a substance user. And I saw this kind of like, like I said, double sword effect be levied against black patients. I don't want to say continually because I feel like that's an exaggeration, but I saw it enough times to know that this is something that yes, is reported in literature, but is a real thing happening to patients in inpatient service. And probably I would say in outpatient services as well. So um, she states that the, in her video that she feels as if the, uh, the doctor, that she said the doctor made her feel like she was a drug addict. That doctor eventually discharged her on December 7th. But 12 hours later, she was rushed by ambulance to a different hospital. She deteriorated and died from COVID on December 20th. Oh my goodness, I got chills when she said this in her video. And this is a quote from her video about her stay at, um, at Indiana University. She says, I put forth and maintained that if I was white, I would not have to go through that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyways, let me continue. So Indiana University responded back and they said, I'm quoting this, as an organization committed to equity and reducing racial disparities in healthcare, we take accusations of discrimination very seriously and investigate every allegation. I wish that schools were as good at implementing measures to ensure these things as they are in making statements claiming they do these things. Like they're very good at these statements. I'll give them that. They're extremely mm -hmm. adept at crafting statements to evade public umbrage or public upset when it comes to issues of social justice. But but the actual work doesn't but seem to practice, get done in the actual institutions. Mm -mm. And then in a press release by the uh, university president and CEO, his name is Dennis F. Murphy, he described her as a complex patient. And he said that the nurses that were taking care of her uh, may have been, and this is a, in quotations, may have been intimidated by a knowledgeable patient who was using social media to voice her concerns and critique the care they were delivering. See, this is an ex exactly a very good example of what happens when institutional faculty and administration co-opt certain language to talk about racial justice or social um, social justice, but don't actually conceptually understand what they're speaking about because mm -hmm. you have these officials who are saying that they're committed to making these spaces more equitable making them less hostile to black patients and black faculty but then simple lessons like not referring to black women as having an it's attitude as intimidating, intimidating as aggressive completely fly over their heads and i would say that's like maybe i don't know anti-racism 101 <laughs> <laughs> If you just did any of the reading that you claimed that you were doing during the summer of listening and learning, you would have been able to kind of, it's not that you're going to completely get rid of the habit all at once, right? But I do find it interesting that this was a statement that probably, yeah, exactly, that probably passed by multiple eyes mm -hmm. or- It's a press release. 
yeah by and the ceo and president like and it's still made it. it's still made yeah. it. it's a, in the, the public sphere oh well you know we were intimidated by the patient maybe the nurses were intimidated by a patient and that was good enough reason for her to deprioritize her needs discharge her wrongfully and let her die die and that's what really baffles me it's like the doctor wanted to discharge her but the ceo and president says that she was a complex patient why was she discharged and if the nurses were so intimidated by her wouldn't they have like i feel like you would work harder to rise to the standard that a patient is looking for if they were so demanding and so intimidating because she was a doctor if she's a black patient, so I don't want to get too much into this because this is kind of separate, but like, you know, we've, I've been reading Isabel Wilkerson's cast, and one of the things that she talks about the whole book is premised on the idea that America has what is essentially the requirements to meet a caste system. This is not just something that's a third world invention. It's something that's very much in place in America, and Black people are at the lower rung of that caste. So if you have a, a person, right, who is at the lower caste rung demanding better treatment, do they even have the right to demand that treatment? Do they have the right to demand you reach a certain standard as an institution or provider? I think, secondly, what's really chilling about Susan Moore or the death of Susan Moore is that it's a very, very direct parallel to what we have been complaining about or protesting about all summer, which is the idea that exactly. Black people are inherently intimidating like, and therefore they need overreactions from police and law oh enforcement. Oh my gosh, it's crazy because it's literally it's the whole point of all these protests. It's a very, very this. sharp and, irony, and oh I can't goodness. believe that statement made it oh out of anywhere. God. I can't believe it made it off of someone's God. typewriter or, you know, keyboard. I can't believe. That's why I said, like, a lot of these, they're very performative gestures, because when you hear people talk about police brutality, are you reflecting on what we're actually asking, or do you just want to make sure you evade the wrath or public wrath of, you know, Black people or people who empathize with Black people? Mm -hmm. So it's it was that was very ironic to me. I was like, so she deserved to die because she was intimidating, much mm -hmm. in the same way that Black people deserve to be executed extrajudicially because they're intimidating. So and no one like a, no one sees that. No, I mean we see it right because this is a narrative that we're very familiar with at this point. It's like a it's very much a rinse and repeat of how people handle Black people in this country, whether they are educated or not, or any of the bootstrapping qualifiers that we might need, such as getting more mm -hmm. education, dressing properly, speaking in quiet enough tones, making our hair less aggressive, or any number of things that um, we alter to make ourselves perceived as less threatening professionally and even outside of the professional world. So, I mean, we see it, but we're not the ones who need to see it. Even for me as a student, I've had like very uncomfortable exchanges with faculty who wrongly presume, right, to know me and my experience based on recently acquired social justice credentials. Again, it's an example of people who are kind of co-opting this language without understanding the concepts belying the language. So you could see in their speech and in the policies they choose to promote that they still have a very superficial view of the topics they're claiming that we have equal passion for. So you as a, a white administrator or the leader of a faculty are saying that you have just as much passion for an issue, me as a student or you as a student, Martha, for issues that we have to live and we don't even get like, we don't get the choice to opt in or out of understanding. Mm -hmm. You can see that in kind of the way that some of these institutions are moving in this post-protest era. Now that everybody wants to get back to normal, you can see that in the way that they're willing to dispose of Black faculty members, Black faculty who aren't willing to be the docile Negro that they were pre-protest.
it's frustrating because you want to give people a chance to prove that they are sincere in their motivation to affect systemic change. Like you want to believe your institution, you want to believe your faculty, you want to believe even like, you know, your non-Black friends and colleagues when they say this is something that they're committed to working on. But the actual work of doing it is very difficult for white people and non-Black people. And I think that we're beginning to see the growing pains of some of the genuine work that's being done, but we're also beginning to see the fallout of people who were not willing to do that work to begin with, but or did want to somehow, yeah, who wanted to capitalize on the moment to say that, oh, okay, our institution is committed to this and we don't want to look like one of those institutions that's racist. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're still not willing to really yield their status or platform to justly to their minority faculty or students and really follow their direction. They want them to simply be a face of an image or a mask that they're trying to give their institution as far as their commitment to anti-racism. And this is going to sound hard line, but frankly, I can only count these efforts as superficial until we see that people are willing to fire, suspend, or investigate faculty who have racial complaints filed against them as readily as we are to fire, suspend, or investigate Black faculty who speak up against racially oppressive practices in medical education and its institutions. We can have workshops all day, but if your values aren't being backed up by your HR policy, I really don't see these as any more than hollow gestures made to make institutions and non-Black faculty feel good about the work they're doing, but not necessarily to provide a safer space for the minority people you're allegedly doing this work for. When racism is seen is as just as unprofessional as speaking up about racism, that is reflected in what administrations are seen to spend bringing their hands over basically, or spend time bringing their hands over, that is when we'll begin approaching, not even achieving, approaching okay. some sort of true commitment to modeling anti-racism. Similarly, when classes on race and medicine and medical education are required as the necessary component of physician education, then we will see a true commitment to anti-racism in our institutions. But until, until then. then.